you know, we know that ups and downs in our glucose, like we were talking about, that variability, those peaks and valleys, they translate to our our lived experience. Those end up translating to often how we're feeling, up, down, up, down, whether it's mood, energy, alertness, etc. This is Glenn Murphy with NC Systema, and this is Systema for Life. Dr. Casey Means, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, thanks so much, especially in the midst of uh, lots of ice storms sweeping across the country and the uh, the East Coast, West Coast time difference. We've had to battle a few things in order to get get together today, so I appreciate you making the effort. Oh, we're yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> so first up, can you tell folks a little bit about um, who you are and what you do? I, I was primarily introduced um, to you through uh, Howard Jacobson, his Plant Yourself podcast, and he has a, a vested interest in uh, metabolism via veganism and the plant-based lifestyle and all those things as well. But we're coming from a slightly different angle. So can you tell folks a bit about um, what it is that you do? Absolutely. So yeah. I'm Casey Means. I am a medical doctor. I uh, live in Portland, Oregon, and I am really focused on health and wellness and longevity. I am very interested in how Um, our health behaviors determine our health outcomes and how to motivate personalized, sustainable uh, lifestyle change and health behaviors to essentially optimize our cellular biology for good living. And where I really focus on in my career is metabolic health. So really optimizing metabolism um, in a personalized way. And so that's my, my clinical work focuses on this. And I've also started a company called Levels, which um, empowers people to understand their metabolisms with a wearable device and to learn how to optimize that. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to talking more about that. Um, Folks have heard me talking a little bit about wearables as well. I'm kind of a big fan of like heart rate variability monitors um, for stress perception and modeling what kinds of things affect your stress levels throughout the day. But I'm really intrigued by this idea of getting more acquainted with your internal metabolic state right and uh, and with a with a tool that can actually get you there without being super invasive right it seems like if you're diabetic or something you can do blood tests multiple times a day and stab yourself with it like a blood monitor type thing but it seems like this is a way of this is kind of bridging the gap between the glut of kind of mini wearables with very limited functionality and devices that have kind of hit the market over the last couple of years and something that's like truly deeply informative in figuring out how our eating patterns and how our behavior patterns and sleep patterns might be all forming a bigger metabolic picture. Is that kind of fair to say? I think it is. I think we have just entered the reality of bio wearables being Mm. something for consumer use. And what I mean by bio wearables is a wearable that's actually tracking an internal biomarker. So we've had trackers that sit on top of the skin for things like Mm. heart rate and heart rate variability and sleep tracking and activity tracking, all these wonderful products, Whoop, Fitbit, et cetera. But we've actually never had something that's measuring an internal biomarker that we wear all the time that's Mm. for mainstream consumer use to understand how nutrition is affecting our bodies in real time. We've had, like I said, that feedback on sleep, activity, stress, but we've actually never had a closed loop feedback system between what we're eating and then what's happening in our body. You can't, you can't do that with heart rate, unfortunately. Um, but fortunately there are these tools now that have been developed and they were primarily developed first for a medical use in the diabetic community. And these are continuous Mm. glucose monitors that literally just stick on the back of your arm. They're completely painless. And they're telling you about, it's like a lab on your arm. It's telling you Mm. about something floating around in your body 
24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the beautiful thing about tracking glucose with a continuous glucose monitor is that glucose changes very rapidly in response to our behaviors. It actually not only responds to what we're eating, which it can do within literally minutes. Mm. Um, something goes in your mouth, you get this immediate feedback, um, you know, in your glucose levels, but it also changes in response to other factors like stress, um, you know, excess stress, your glucose is going to go up too little sleep. Your glucose is going to go up. Mm. Haven't exercised much. Your glucose is going to go up. If you exercise, your glucose is going to go down. So it's mm. this beautiful, like centralizing biomarker that really serves as this like hub for so many of the, the dietary and lifestyle things that we're all trying to improve. So it's kind of got multivariate input, but this beautiful readout that can help us really optimize so many aspects of our, of our lifestyle. But for the first time, diet, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. So, um, so to play devil's advocate here, this is kind of not really my voice, but the voice of an imagined skeptic coming. Yes, into like, bring why, it. Why, why do we need to go quite so deep on glucose levels specifically? Like, don't we kind of know that sugary foods are bad for us and we shouldn't eat too many of them at once? And maybe let's limit the carbohydrate intake and all of those things. Do we, do we need to fine grain it so much in order to really understand our diet? Such a great question. I think there's there's two points there. One is the personalization piece, and two is a piece about does information really change behavior? So yeah. I'll actually start with the second one. You know, I agree. It's like, wouldn't it just be so easy to like look at the back of a nutrition label and say, oh, it's got sugar, so I, I'm not going to eat this. But if that were the case, we, we wouldn't have the, the metabolic epidemic that we're dealing sure. with today. And, yeah. and when I say epidemic, I'm in no way um, hyperbolizing there. We have sure. in America, you know, 72% of Americans are overweight or obese and 128 million Americans have prediabetes or diabetes. So that's over that's a third of the, the population. <laughs> it's, it's getting close to that. Yeah. And this is largely preventable. This, the majority of this is type two diabetes, mm. uh, the vast majority, which, which makes up to 95% of diabetes of which most of that is preventable. And yeah. so so yes, it would be great if we just sort of were able to take in that information and make better decisions, but that's very, very challenging. Sugar is addictive. Sugar is in everything. It's added to 60% of um, processed foods. Um, it's just, it's literally everywhere. And so having information that says, hey, you ate this and it actually caused a real issue, like it did do something in your body, that extra closed loop biofeedback can be very powerful for motivating behavior change. And then the second point was that it's interesting, actually different foods are going to affect different people differently in terms mm -hmm. of how much it affects your glucose. So you and I could both eat sort of a seemingly healthy food, like a sweet potato or a banana or brown rice. Mm -hmm. And you and I could actually have vastly different responses in terms of how much that elevates our blood glucose. And that actually goes a little bit counter to the prevailing glycemic index philosophy that we've seen, which is like, oh, if, if we both eat a piece of white bread, our blood sugar is both going to rise a certain amount. That's the sure. glycemic index of the food. And that's actually sort of been shown to be not quite accurate. Recent yeah. research out of, there was a really landmark paper um, out of the Weissman Institute in Israel about five years ago in the journal Cell that was called uh, Prediction of uh, uh, personalized nutrition by prediction of glycemic responses. And what they showed is they put glucose monitors on about 800 healthy people, gave them all standardized meals and found that they were all across the board in terms of how they responded in terms of glucose elevation. And mm. 
Then they looked at what the reasons for that were. And one of the really big reasons was microbiome composition. They Mm. also had everyone do stool samples. They sequenced their microbiome and they found that different microbial composition in the gut actually changes the way you process carbohydrate and sugar metabolism. So makes sense, right? (laughs) They're taking the first pass at all this stuff. And so it's so fascinating that, you know, we really don't know what we're putting in our mouth and how it's actually going to affect our bodies unless we test it. We can certainly, you know, do a good job of trying to guess, but this is less even about micro optimization and more about just having some feedback to know how these foods are affecting us. And especially in our food culture where so much is just marketed as healthy. You walk into the store and it's like healthy, this organic, that gluten-free, that it's really hard to know what's actually right. So that's why I think tracking can be, can give us a real leg up. Is, is it the um, is it the real time element that makes this so powerful? Because it seems to me that you could keep a food diary and, you know, eat foods and then, you know, examine your poop and then see how you feel and like log your moods and all these different things. But there, there's differential times for digestion for people as well, aren't there? Like some people take longer to digest things than others. So sometimes it's hard to put together the cause and effect of the thing that you ate and the mood that you had and the interplay between all those things and sleep patterns and mood. Is it the fact that you actually see the, the, the glucose arc, the kind of processing arc in real time that makes this such a powerful tool? I think that really is the crux of it. I think so much in health and nutrition um, is what I would consider open loop systems, meaning that there is very little one-to-one relationship between an action and a reaction. And that unfortunately Mm. really pulls out the rug from effective behavior change because there's so many variables in our lives day to day and to not be able to link them to an outcome makes it hard to go back and choose which variables to change. And that can make it really frustrating. So for instance, with diet, one of the, some of the only pieces of feedback we get, or maybe the scale the next day is a little bit different than the day before, maybe six months from now, we go to the doctor and our fasting glucose is two points higher than it was last year. Maybe our cholesterol is our LDL is 15 points different than it was the year before. And the doctor says, oh, you should probably clean up your diet a little bit. What in the world does that mean? That's an open loop system. It's really (laughs) difficult. And so when you can actually close that action reaction as tight as possible, that drives behavior change. And so you can imagine like you eat a sweet potato and 20 minutes later, you see a sharp acceleration of your glucose. The next day you eat you know, uh, a green smoothie and nothing happens to your glucose. That's like, okay, the, the sweet potato is probably causing a significant insulin release as well. That mm. insulin is going to be counterproductive in terms of any weight loss efforts. It's going to, you know, cause potentially other issues. If I do that over and over every single day, seven days a week for the next year, that's a lot of glucose and insulin elevation that you had no idea you were doing. So I do think tightening that one-to-one relationship mm. is, is really important. You, you talked also about the subjective part of things too. I think I really think of behavior change as a trifecta. It's an action, an objective response, but you also have to link the subjective component. So how did you feel? Were you tired? Were you energized? Did you have mm. a crash after it? Did you feel jittery an hour after you had that thing? And when you can link all those three things, I think it's, it's really helpful. An example mm. for myself is is like oatmeal. This is something that a lot of people consider to be a healthy breakfast food. And mm. I was eating it frequently um, for breakfast. And, you know, but normally mid-morning, early afternoon, I sort of have this like, you know, mid-morning slump, need a cup of coffee, you know, need a snack or whatever. So going along thinking that's just normal, that's what everyone has and does. Mm. 
Then you throw on a glucose monitor and you see, oh, my glucose raised 90 points in response to oatmeal, which is an amount that a healthy person would never want to see on their glucose. You don't want to go up even close to that. And then because of that huge glucose surge, my body's releasing a lot of insulin to take up all that glucose, which causes this crash. And I'm actually going yeah. below my baseline and then it has to recover. And right around that time is always when I'm feeling a little tired and a little jittery in the morning and need that extra hit of like maybe a treat or a coffee. Mm. So then all of a sudden it's this link of subjective, objective and action. Well, I've never eaten oatmeal since then and totally have switched up sort of what I eat a more, a higher fat, higher protein type breakfast. And it just changes, it changes quite a bit. And so, so that's really sort of the fun, the fun. And I, you know, that, that implies that you have to eliminate anything that spikes your glucose, which actually is not true. In my opinion, mm -hmm. there's other ways to modulate our response. You can include more fat protein or fiber with your carbohydrate choices. You can make sure mm -hmm. to eat higher carbohydrate foods on days that you have had good sleep on days that you are exercising on days that you are lower stress so that you're just not getting this compounded metabolic mm. response. So, um, mm. definitely not all about deprivation, but just being thoughtful about all the different ways that we can keep our glucose low and stable throughout the day, which is what we want and what translates to essentially a more stable day overall mood, energy, performance, et cetera. Yeah, so not just stable weight, but stable mood, stable you, stable yeah. health like, over yeah. time. Right? So, yeah, that, that's fascinating. And um, what that resonated on two levels. One is that um, I stopped eating brown rice and oatmeal a long time ago. Like my, my wife is a big proponent of oatmeal in the morning. She likes to eat it. But I just found that I was getting up in the morning eating oatmeal and just feeling terrible, like having a crash as if I'd eaten a big sugary donut or something like like an hour later. And then mainlining tea. I drink tea because I'm English instead of coffee. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and just feeling really bad on it and not really knowing why. And then, again, trying to switch to brown rice thinking, oh, it has more, you know, has more fiber, more nutritive content than white rice, and just feeling awful every time I'd eaten brown mm. rice, like oddly, and um, and not really being able to explain it, but moving on. So you, you feel like that's explainable by differences in kind of glucose metabolism and the way that it hits different people at different times. Because I know plenty of people who can eat oatmeal in the morning and feel great on it, right? I'm not one of them. <laughs> so either I, I either have like a protein, largely protein-based breakfast, or I actually I typically do time-restricted eating. So I'll just eat between the hours of like 12 and 8, and I feel a lot better for that. I'm not, I don't even like, you know, <laughs> it, uh, I seem to do better in terms of digestion if I if I don't eat in the mornings right away. So is, is that within the kind of the bounds of what you're talking about? Definitely, I think mm. for sure. And I think that point about time-restricted eating is really fascinating as well, because, uh, you know, we know that like, ups and downs in our glucose, like we were talking about that variability, those peaks and valleys, they translate to our, our lived experience. Those end up translating to often how we're feeling up, down, up, down, mm. whether it's mood, energy, alertness, et cetera. And so, um, what you're doing when you're time restricted feeding is you may be eating the exact same number of calories as someone would be if they spaced the eating out, but doing it in a shorter window. And what you're doing then outside of that window is you're essentially eliminating glucose elevations related to food. And so you're also eliminating insulin elevations in response to food. And insulin is the really key piece here because insulin is this amazing hormone in the body that has two main functions. It has many, many functions, but two of the big ones in relation to metabolism is one, it helps your cells take glucose out of the bloodstream and into the cells for use, for energy. Mm. But the other thing it does is it blocks our body from burning fat for energy because Glucose and fat are our two main forms of energy in the body. And when we mm. have a lot of glucose, our body shuts down using fat mm. uh, for energy. And so 
what people who do time restricted feeding benefit from is they're having a lot of time in their body where their insulin is in a low state, which means the body has the ability to burn fat for energy. And fat is a great thing to burn for energy because it's a much more sort of stable form of energy. We have only about two hours of glucose stored in our body at any given time, but we have like days worth of fat stored. So yeah. if your body becomes trained through time-restricted feeding, intermittent fasting, sort mm -hmm. of low-carb diets, you end up spending a lot of your day in this low insulin state, tapping into fat burning, you build those metabolic pathways, you become more efficient at those, that cellular signaling and mm. you become a fat burner. And so then let's say you've gone three hours since your last meal, instead of getting jittery and hangry and needing food, you just flip your body can flip on the fat burning and you have this sustained energy. And also when we burn fats, we produce ketone bodies. And there's there's good evidence that ketones are actually beneficial for the brain. They're anti-inflammatory. Um, mm. Some people feel like they get a ketone high when their ketones are very high in the body. So it's all a good thing to mm. give your body these conditions where it can actually tap into a cellular pathway of fat burning that the average American's virtually never doing because we're always hitting ourselves with carbohydrates and sugar and keeping the insulin high. And we're just blocking the ability to actually burn this alternative fuel source, which is a really stable, healthy mm. fuel source to burn. And that whole process that I'm talking about is essentially called metabolic flexibility. We mm. want to move into a state where we are not rigidly dependent on glucose. We are metabolically flexible between glucose and fat burning. And that state is associated with longevity and good health. And that's where we really want to be. Hi, folks. Glenn here. As Systema for Life approaches its 100th episode, I'd like to take a minute to thank everyone who has contributed to the show, all our listeners, and to everyone who's offered requests, encouragement, and feedback along the way. I also need to ask a quick favor. We have already enjoyed two years of high-quality interviews, insights, and ideas on Systema for Life. We'd like to keep the show going, and we want to keep it open to all, but we need your help to do it. It takes time, effort, and more than little cash to produce a podcast more than two grand a year at current hosting and production rates. We have no paid advertising, and we do it all off our own backs with help from listeners and generous supporters like you. So if you're a fan of Systema for Life and you get real value from the ideas and the conversations we create, then please take a few minutes now to subscribe at www.ncsystema.com support. Support at whatever level you feel like you can afford. Even $3 or $5 a month is a help. Think of it as buying us a beer or a cup of coffee once a month for our travels. So visit ncsystema.com support and use the buttons on the page to select your preferred monthly or annual support level. You'll receive a confirmation on sign up and you can cancel at any time. Yeah, it's the first time I've ever heard that phrase, that metabolic flexibility phrase that way. I'm, I've, I've been aware of this concept that it's, it's possible to move between different um burning preferential fuels within the body with practice, essentially, right? If you've never practiced burning fat, essentially, or your body doesn't get good at those pathways, um, then you just keep subsisting on this kind of peaks and troughs of glucose all the time, and and you're not good at it. And then when you have to fast, you get really angry, and you know, other things happen. But yeah. if you practice fasting, you your body seems to adapt to that and be be better at it over time. We In our style we of, um, of martial art that we practice, this Russian-derived old style that comes from the old kind of orthodox 
you know, very much kind of let's withdraw from everything and be very stoic and see whether or not we can still survive it type thing. You know, this is the best yeah. we can do. Russian, you know, <laughs> um, we have this, so there's a tradition there of um, of fasting in, in which that maybe like once a week you'll just fast for 24 hours and it will be kind of usually a wet fast. Usually you just like sip water, but there's nothing else, like literally nothing else going on. Some people even do it completely dry. Um, and the idea of that, it seems to be kind of like twofold. One is that um, the, the analogy I was first told with it is that it's like cleaning the oven. You know, like if you never give the, uh, if you just keep shoving things in the oven and just gets this kind of caked surface around the inside of it, mold and stuff like that, it's not very efficient. It doesn't burn very well, won't heat things up. And so the analogy was just like, this is what it's like in your gut. You know, you just kind of build up all these gut bacteria and stuff like that. And if you never give your gut a rest, then it gets crazy. And I thought that was kind of broad brushing it. But in light of what we know about the microbiome, I think that's quite an interesting mm -hmm. point to make. Maybe it's not the, you know, the, the mat of the microbiome itself, but maybe it's the, you know, the glucose matrix that they exude and all of those things as well. You know, that, that there is something akin to cleaning the oven when you just give your gut a rest for like a while. But the, but the other idea being that it's the withdrawal of that comfort of eating when you feel that urge to eat and you, you mistake the discomfort of like vague hunger for real hunger, you know, like the, the hunger that comes with famine, like you need to eat something or you're going to be in trouble kind of thing. Like most of us just mistake that discomfort and then we just start to put things in our faces the minute we become not full, which is very different. Right? It's like not satiated and hungry are two different things, but they seem to be conflated right in modern developed societies a lot. And then and then if you can kind of train yourself to notice that difference, then you're OK with it psychologically and you can and you, you're better at doing without and you're better at being uncomfortable. So it's kind of like a, a dual approach to this. Like you need to practice being uncomfortable and you also need to train your body to be OK with it. And so I love hearing this kind of scientific rationale for exactly where both of those things are coming from. I've, I've heard the rationale from the stress and resilience point of view that you're kind of inoculating yourself against stress when you're fasting or you're, you know, tipping buckets of cold water over your head or all the other crazy things that we do in our style. But um, but I love this idea that it's that there's a, a, a documentable researched pathway towards actually that your body does adapt and does get better at adapting through this kind of withdrawal. Yeah, it's so true. And you mentioned like the gut microbiome and the oven cleaning. And the thing that mm. I really think about is cleaning out the liver. So the liver mm. is where the majority of our, our stored glucose is. It's stored in change called glycogen. And only when you really deplete that glycogen, that stored glucose, do you switch over into using fat, this like secondary form of energy. So mm. when I'm fasting or when I'm working out in a fasted state, so using energy, but I haven't eaten anything, I'm very much in my mind visualizing a cleaning out of my liver glycogen. I want that to be depleted so I can then, I know then that I'm moving my body more towards that fat burning. And mm. this kind of coincides with a lot that's going on in the athletic world, looking out, there's many in the athletic elite athletic world that are doing glucose monitoring as a way to improve performance. And it's very, it's becoming popular in the endurance athlete world, especially because you can imagine for endurance athletes who are going to need sustained energy, if mm. they are not metabolically flexible, they are dependent on exogenous oral intake of glucose throughout their event to basically maintain mm. their energy levels. But if they're highly metabolically flexible, then you could potentially run a marathon having not eaten anything because you're so good at burning fat. So there's mm. a lot of terms for this fat adapted athletes, carb cycling athletes, keto adapted athletes, but it's definitely gaining a lot of momentum because it is very different than the concept of like 
glycogen loading or carb loading, eat the huge pasta before your event, load the body with stores of quickly accessible energy. This is a slightly different paradigm, which is actually if you don't load the body with that, you build alternative pathways that actually Mm. keep you stable, uh, potentially more an anti-inflammatory state, which can help with recovery. Um, Mm. So not something you want to jump into immediately like tomorrow everyone who's listening goes out and does like a fasted five mile run that would probably feel very uncomfortable because your body is not adapted to burning fat everything in the body takes time it takes consistency and over time you change gene expression you change cellular pathways it takes time but it is something interesting to ease into um most of the people at my company i would say at this point because we are able to track our glucose we know that in the morning, actually, our glucose is generally fine levels, you know, that you can maybe jump on the Peloton and do a workout without having had breakfast and you do fine. And then over time, that's just going to be create a more metabolically flexible um, body. So I'm at the point mm. now where almost all my my workouts are 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 fasted because to me, it feels like getting double bang for my buck from the workout. Mm. I'm improving my insulin sensitivity. I'm improving my metabolic status. Um, and I'm also just getting the, the fitness benefits in general. Um, I will say a caveat to that is for people doing more sprint like, or that was going to be my next question. Yeah. (laughs) Is there, is there a difference between kind of endurance sports and power-based sports where you might need like a quick release, you know, quickly, like a, a quicker growth curve essentially. Yeah. So that, so for people who are doing more explosive type events in competition, that is where having readily accessible, carbohydrate glucose is important because at those very high quick intensity type events, you're going to be just preferentially burning glucose over fat. Mm -hmm. So now I still think it's valuable to have an awareness about glucose, even for those types of athletes, because Mm -hmm. a lot of the, the products that are marketed towards athletes right now are these like total sugar bombs. It's like, you know, Gatorade and goos and protein shakes and bars that have like 30, 40 grams of sugar. And to replete, you know, all the glycogen in your body that you would need to fuel your muscles, like you don't need to have a crazy spike and a crazy crash, which you can imagine who wants that before, during, or after their workout, you know, like this big glucose spike, an insulin surge crash, you know, halfway through your workout, you're feeling tired and jittery. You you don't want that. So I, I would, I recommend for those types of athletes still track how your, your energy type, you know, foods, um, that you're using for recovery or for performance, how much they're changing your glucose. Cause you don't want to overshoot it. You don't want to go crazy. You don't, you need much more of a gentle, slow elevation to still get all the benefits of loading your muscle with mm-hmm. glycogen. So anyways, it just kind of allows us to be thoughtful regardless of the type of event, but I'd say more for the endurance athletes, that's where getting into that fat oxidation can actually be like a real, I think, competitive, um, advantage. So, sure. yeah. Well, it just seems like there's so many so many good reasons to have the information and then you can act on it, right? Regardless of whether or not you're going to tweak, make massive tweaks to your eating patterns and, and, and daily behaviors. It's like, at least you've got the information, you have the data to act on. It's not guesswork anymore, right? When you have that feedback. So, yeah, that's huge. So, I, I, one reason, again, that I love this is that it just pushes forward the the paradigm that we, that we are somewhat individual in our metabolism and we have to take account of that. Um, it's not a one size fits all plan. You can't just push 
um, one specific diet onto everybody and then hope that it's going to pan out in exactly the same way. Like you said, like, here's the glycemic index of this banana. And when you eat this, it will go up by X. It's like, that's not quite how it works, you know? So, and we know that it's not, in, you know, kind of intuitively, if we work out really hard and then you, you get a craving sometimes for like lots of carbohydrate rich stuff. And you, sometimes you can get away with eating that and you still feel fine. And then other days when you haven't done anything and you eat even less than that, um, you'll put on weight and you'll feel lethargic and you'll feel terrible. So there's this, we know there's an interplay between energy expenditure and putting it in. But I think all too often we've just kind of fallen into that simplistic paradigm of just straight calories in, calories out, right? Um, there's a friend of mine who's a, a personal trainer who once a year with monotonous regularity, he posts on social media this, you know, this uh, meme and it just says, uh, here's, here's all the diets that are trendy right now. And it has like, you know, carnivore, keto, um, vegan, plant-based, you know, or vegetarian, or, you know, all these different diets that all the way down to the bottom. And then on the other column, it says, here's how this diet works. And it just says calorie restriction, calorie restriction, calorie restriction, like, all the way down. Is it like, and there's right. just, like, any questions, it says at the bottom. And that really uh, annoys me because on the one hand, it's partly true. Of course, there's truth in that, right? That if you use fewer, um, if you use fewer calories than your body actually needs, then of course you will start to lose weight as a net effect, right? And if you consume more calories in terms of net expenditure than your body is putting out, um, then you'll start to gain. It will go both ways, right? And that sort of stuff. But it's it's simplistic both in the sense of behavior, because like counting calories is super monotonous and we're not going to do it in a sustainable way for our entire lives, right? For that way. And it's also simplistic in the sense that not all of those calories are, are, are quite created equal, that there are, are kind of curves to the way that our bodies respond to those things. And so we'll process them in different ways, right? Um, which I th And knowing that and having the backup for that and not having it be some woo-woo thing that's connected to, you know, some Ayurvedic diet or something like that, but having it be a science-based researched, you know, demonstrable effect is, it, I think it's really, really powerful. I think people need to be shocked out of that simple energy paradigm we're not machines we don't fill up with battery power and then run out that's not how we work right, right. it's so true and i think it's just like to a simple example about the calories in calories out it's like you take you know a hundred calories of broccoli or an egg let's say mm. and then you've got a hundred calories of candy with a bunch of high fructose corn syrup glucose whatever in it and sugar those are both 100 calories, but are going to definitely have a different impact on metabolism and weight because the thing that the calories in, calories out model is missing is the hormonal element, the downstream pathways that it happen when those that those calories go into your body. Mm. Um, the sugar is going to cause a glucose release in the bloodstream, an insulin response. The broccoli and the eggs are not. And what that insulin is then going to do is tell your body very differently how to process and store those calories uh, for the for the sugar and the candy it's going to say okay like load this glucose into your cells and then all the excess store it as fat and uh, convert it to triglycerides or store it as glycogen you know and with the others it's it's not going to have that insulin surge and so your body's going to say okay like it's going to it's going to use what it can it's going to but then it's going to burn through it because insulin break that is not in the picture, you can keep, you can burn that fat in the egg. Mm. You know, it's just a totally different downstream response. So mm. it's really interesting how we've gotten so deep in that model when it's just, it is very, it's a very limited view of what's happening inside the body. Do, do you feel like it's been difficult to exit because there've been so many abortive attempts, right? It seems to me the calories in, calories out model has been around for what, about a century now, I think, or something like that. And it's based on the idea of how much 
you know, a foodstuff will raise a, a volume of water or something ridiculous right. like that. It's literally like the chemical, like heat raising content of a piece exactly. of food, which is kind of a daft model when we, we're not really burning it that way in metabolism, you know, we're processing it through enzymes and processes that shift things around. So it's kind of daft, but it seems to me there's been all these different um, claims that you need to forget entirely about calories because the Atkins plan is what you really need to think about. Just your gross carbohydrate intake is the only thing you need to worry about. And then people start to discredit, you know, a, a severe carbohydrate um, limited diet or something. And then somebody else comes along with something else. There's no, what you need is the carnivore diet or no, what you need is the keto diet. And then there's so many kind of deviations from it that all seem to have their own little kind of downstream side effects that are undesirable, like a carnivore diet. It's possible that you could survive okay on that, but it's but there's some evidence to show that it, it feeds tumor cells, you know, and tumor cells mm -hmm. grow faster under a, on a under a meat heavy diet. Whether or not you're getting, you know, good triglyceride levels, and whether or not your glucose metabolism is fairly stable, it might be doing other things in terms of cancer growth and repair and things like that. So there's, there always seems to be some like side effect to it. And so is it just that people keep coming back to the orthodoxy because they're like, oh, all of these fads don't work, so I'm going to come back to the calories thing. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's so much noise and there's so much confu confusion in the nutrition space. And that's one of the reasons me as a nutrition obsessed physician, you know, I'm like, how do we cut through this noise? Because it, it not only creates frustration and confusion in people who are trying so hard to be healthy, so hard to lose weight, having difficulty. And then you hear all these different voices. It makes you doubt your choices. And that can make hard lifestyle change even more difficult when you like mm -hmm. when there's mistrust in like even what you're doing, because there's so many people yelling. And so to me, cutting through any of that with objective data is a step in the right direction. Like you don't mm -hmm. have to listen to anyone. You just have to listen to what's happening inside your body. You know, you just have to listen to to your objective data. And it just in a way, it's very liberating, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, for me personally, you know, I'm a plant-based person, which is, we got connected through Howie, who's, who's mm -hmm. got, you know, plant-based. And so for me, a lot of people would say like, oh my gosh, plant-based, it's so high carb. How do you possibly keep your glucose low? And, and, you know, what I say to that is, you know, food is molecular information. That's, that's all food is. It is information you're putting in your mouth, which tells your cells and your body how to function. And you can get that molecular information from all sorts of different types of diet. And for me, mm. plants have a lot of molecular information in them that, that are very positive for cellular biology. So I want to maximize that, but I also know that I want to minimize my glycemic fluctuations. So how would you, how do you do that? Um, you know, I test it. I, there's a whole bunch of very healthy foods I can eat from a whole foods plant-based diet. And then I can choose the ones within that, that don't have the collateral damage of mm. a high glucose or metabolic response. So for me, what that looks like is I'm focusing mostly on green, leafy, colorful vegetables, which tend to have virtually no glucose response. I eat a select amount of fruits, you know, but definitely still eat a lot of fruit. I just choose the ones that don't spike me. Bananas take me to 180. Um, mm -hmm. Apples don't. They, they maybe raise mm -hmm. my glucose 10 points. So um, I stick with, you know, apples, sort of unripe pears, um, cherries, some berries, blueberries, oranges are generally pretty good for me. It depends on the variety though. Some oranges mm. will spike me, others won't. So that's kind of interesting. And then I really figured out swaps that, that work for me in terms of the grains. I, rice spikes me. Um, 
you know, most grains will. So now I'm eating a lot of cauliflower rice, broccoli rice, beans and legumes don't spike me at all. And so I eat tons mm. of beans and legumes, even though they are high carb foods, I'm pretty convinced my microbiome just processes them in a way that doesn't raise my glucose. Cause I actually have other members of my team who are not plant-based who spike a lot more with beans. And I think because I've been doing this for in all years, kinds of ways, probably as well. <laughs> yeah, oh God, yeah. <laughs> but for me and my body, for some reason, doesn't create a glucose elevation. So I think mm. over time, probably in the course of years of eating tons and tons of fiber, my body just maybe has a different like microbiome composition that just doesn't lead to that. And so, yeah, mm. so it looks like a lot of legumes, beans, grain alternatives like broccoli rice, cauliflower rice, tons of nuts and seeds, olives, avocados, greens, spices, some fruits. And that essentially keeps me glucose flat almost all the time in a really low and healthy range. If you looked at my glucose curve, I think the average person would definitely think I was carnivore. Um, mm. And I've seen some of them posting their glucose responses oh, this is what carnivore can do for you. But I think it's what any diet can do for you as long as it's like thoughtfully chosen and you're being smart about it. So um, that's what I'm trying to optimize for. And I do think it, it means that you can, you can kind of make your, you can optimize for both things, the mm -hmm. highest nutrient value of your food without the collateral damage of spikes. So that's excellent. That's, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And another thing that I love about that is that, you, that what you said there about um, having a subjective comparison in addition to these objective voices that are coming in from all over the place. Because I think one of the problems about that noisy space is that even if you're trying to look in the right places, even if you're not just going to Facebook for your dietary advice or just the next fad that comes through the news, even if you're reading all the journals, right, and you're trying to read things, there's so much disagreement just even among nutritionists. Like the, the field, it's so complex, like in a very real way when you talk to people who are deeply versed in professors of nutrition, they'll say there's so much that we don't know about nutrition and how it works that, it, you know, some of them are even like, it seems to be even half miraculous. I can't even explain the other half part of it. It just gets that crazy complicated. So there's this kind of admission that there's big black holes in our knowledge and our understanding of how things are put together. We have certain pathways, but there are obviously just millions of other pathways that we haven't mapped yet by biochemically, right? And so we can't see the whole picture. And I think arrogantly sometimes individual diets or, or ways of eating assume the whole picture they say well we have this pathway we know this happens therefore this is the only important pathway right um for people on keto diets like ketosis is the only important it's the only thing you need to know about right in people um on low carb plans all you need to know about is this and that you're interested yeah. in things like that but what i like about this is that it, it reconciles the data you might be getting from other people including respected scientists from everywhere you can get them with your own subjective experiences of what it's like after you eat a banana or a pear. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it's it's hard to lie to yourself if you eat something that, you know, puts you on the toilet for an hour and a half afterwards, right? You're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that had an effect, right? right. <laughs> Regardless of what somebody else said, you know, or if you consistently go, you know, get the rage or get jittery after eating or drinking something really specific, you know deep down that that's having an effect and you can't lie to yourself. So it allows you to reconcile it. And it seems to me having like an, uh, uh, what do you term it, a, a closed loop? Um, closed loop biofeedback, yeah. Closed loop biofeedback system like this is almost like having a Rosetta Stone where you can kind of translate all of those different inputs plus your own subjective experience into something that's genuinely actionable. Yeah. I think that's true. I will say it's, I mean, glucose is one biomarker and it's mm. the only biomarker we can measure continuously right now at home. There are others that are very, very important. And so yeah. 
I'm very excited to see how this space evolves because, you know, I, I think that if we're only optimizing around glucose, there are problems that can arise. You know, you could drink only vodka all day long and your glucose yeah. would be low, but you're obviously not going to be healthy. <laughs> now, uh, now you're preaching to the Russians listening to this podcast. They're yeah, very happy about exactly. that. <laughs> Russians everywhere saying, this is exactly my diet. No, no, they like no. it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, and it's like, you can eat, I could eat all broccoli all day or all meat and your glucose would also probably look entirely flat. And so yeah. I think what we need is in the future. And, and that's a great, I mean, it's honestly a great place to start. I think we've already talked on this podcast a lot about the benefits, why orienting around glucose is important, but I think it's, it is also very important to remember that like, it's not, it, that's not everything. There's still sure. going to be things that don't spike your glucose that have other effects that we're just not seeing. So that's where I think the carnivore thing is going to become interesting. Like sure. The glucose is flat. That's good. Insulin is probably pretty low. Um, but what's happening with, if we had a continuous inflammatory marker, if we had a yeah. continuous uric acid marker, if we had a continuous, um, you know, CRP, whatever, or, or uh, free fatty acids, triglycerides, mm what else would that build into the algorithm? So in terms of the future of this sort of nutrition, wearable, continuous feedback space, what I want to see is more a more holistic picture of the continuous variables so that we can make even more nuanced decisions. But with that said, I think it's a great start. We're moving in the right direction, but, yeah. but the model is not complete. So, yeah. So, so yeah. that's where you'd like to see it. That's the vision that you'd have in the future is to have a wearable like um, you have with levels, but that measures more different biomarkers and gives you a more complete picture of what's going on. I would like to see that for sure. I think that yeah. would be really, really helpful. And, and then we do integrate sleep data, exercise data, heart rate data, because those things can help you parse out what non-food factors are affecting your metabolism. But I think that those those bio, those, um, metrics plus other biomarkers that I think we're going to mm. see stuff like that coming down the line. Um, yeah, let's, let's pivot to that for a second. Cause we've, we've talked a lot about kind of, um, the benefits of flattening out the glucose curve for, for maintaining kind of peak metabolism in terms of, um, making sure that you're healthy in terms of weight and maybe health in terms of nutrients and things. Um, but I, I'm really interested in the interplay between metabolism and stress, right? How it can work. Cause obviously when we're, when we are stressed out, when our sympathetic nervous systems are firing up, it changes our metabolism. Um, and that can affect the way that we process even the same foods, right? And, and under the same conditions and the inverse can also be true, right? Some foods can change our metabolism and our sympathetic nervous systems or rather the limbic system can perceive that as stress going on, right? And then yeah. drive up a system and then you become hypervigilant because you've been drink, eating a lot of sugar, right? And things like that. Yeah. So there's kind of like this two-way feedback loop going on, one drives the other. In the stress-proof courses that I run, um, I asked them to do this exercise for like a week or two weeks called Stress Boot Camp, where I take five areas of comforting behaviors. Um, there's sleep, there's diet, there's um, movement, there's focus and there's connection, right? Connecting with other people. And focus is like multitasking and picking up social media in between meetings and things like that. And I essentially kind of asked them to go Spartan on one of them for like a week. So if they if they really drink a lot of coffee and they tend to kind of comfort eat, I'm like for a whole week, no caffeine of any kind, um, no processed sugar, right? And you don't eat anything at all for like a window of like 18 hours, like from six until 12 the next day or something like that. And then see, see what happens. And it's not 
like a name and shame thing. It's just to see what other behaviors come out of that. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when they're hangry, do then do then they stay up all night binge watching Netflix because they're bored or something? Yeah. You know? What what other trans behaviors does that translate into? Um, and for the sleep one, it's like okay, you have to go to bed. You have to try and get eight hours of sleep, which means going to bed early. What happens then when you get up in the morning? Like, or what happens to your diet patterns? What other things kind of come out of that omission? You know, and just sort of seeing those. And that's that's my attempt in a way of without having specific biomarkers for everything, just saying, let's do a null hypothesis on all of these little comforting behaviors and then see what the effect is on all the others. Like, where does it go? And that kind of stuff. Um, what kinds what kinds of things have you been interested in looking at? You, you mentioned that the device kind of features, the device, you know, the wearable features heart rate variability and maybe kind of correlating that with metabolism markers and things like that. What kinds of things are you looking for or recommending when you're um, giving the reports to people who are monitoring both glucose and sleep levels and all of those things? Yeah. So, um, currently we're currently, we don't have HRV incorporated in it, but that is, that is a next step that we want to do. Um, but we are really helping people more subjectively draw an association between what's happening with their metabolism and what's happening with stress. Because like you mentioned, Mm. there's a really, really strong link. Physiologically, what we know is that when we experience stress, whether it's physical or psychological, physical being like a very hard workout is a stressor Mm. on the body. And then psychologically, anything from a fight to a ping on our phone, to honking in traffic, to Mm. stored stress in our body from like childhood events and trauma and things like that, all of those things can have an impact on our catecholamine hormones, our cortisol, our, our epinephrine, et cetera, our stress hormones. And mm-hmm. what's interesting is that the body has evolved to basically think, okay, if there's a stressful situation, we probably are going to need to mobilize. The body's going to need to like pick up and do something. We're going to have to respond to whatever this threat that's causing stress is. So mm-hmm. our body's response to those hormones is actually to release glucose into the bloodstream. And mm-hmm. the way it does that is that cortisol and epinephrine, they tell the liver to dump this stored glucose into the blood because the body needs to like have energy to mobilize. It needs sure. to be in circulation for the muscles. And while that may have been a really effective strategy when most of our stressors were physical, like we're being chased by a lion or whatever, sure. yeah. they're just not as evolutionarily advantageous now when the vast, we have really virtually no physical threats in our modern world compared to historically. Um, it's a safe time to be alive by and large. However, Mm -hmm. psychologically, we've never had more access to stressors. So we're getting little glucose spikes all the time, literally that we're thinking ourselves into, which is incredible. Um, examples of this is we see people giving a talk or even being on like a podcast or having an argument or even a stressful conversation with a loved one. And people will send us screenshots or post on, on social media, a 20, 30 point glucose rise, totally fasted, no food. That is just their liver dumping their glucose. And so Mm -hmm. we want to do everything we can to avoid that. And I think similar to HRV, which is this wonderful objective marker of our stress so that uh, glucose does a similar, similar thing. We, a lot of us walk around saying, oh, I'm not stressed. I feel fine. Everything's fine. You know, yeah. and dying on the inside. It's like, <laughs> it's like you're being called on it by a good friend being like, yeah. oh, I know you think you're fine. I know you're telling everyone that you're killing it and you're hustling, but you're actually hurting your body by, by doing this. So you need to rethink this. And yeah. what I love about, I use the leaf therapeutic, um, HRV monitor, mm-hmm. um, 
And, you know, of course I use levels for the glucose monitoring and you, what, what I find is that if you take 10 deep diaphragmatic breaths and really focus on the moment, um, it can totally short circuit my, my HRV plummeting, and it can also help with the glucose response. So, Mm -hmm. so that's where I think it's really nice, you know, just giving you objective, you cannot outsmart this. Um, unless you focus on really getting your cortisol down, which fortunately I'm sure you teach your clients this, we have evidence-based ways to get our stress response down. And we just, you've got to actually tap into those to have that extra layer of accountability, I think is so valuable. And the stress piece I care a lot about, um, in addition to the food. So, yeah. And it has to be a physical intervention, right? That's the whole thing. I think the way that people go when they when they become stressed is like, I'm going to think my way out of this. I'm just going to positive self-talk, go to your happy place, and everything will go away. But that's not how it works because like that higher cognitive part of your brain essentially goes offline when you're stressed out, right? The limbic system's taking over. The limbic system's calling the shots. And it's it's been doing it for a very long time quite successfully. It's just not very good at doing it during internet arguments. Like great running from lions, not particularly great when you're trying to flame somebody online. And, you've, and the examples that I typically give about how is about how the stress response shifts blood pressure right so it's you know obviously shunts blood into the limbs and into the head towards the sense organs preparing you for a fight that you're not actually having so when you're having a stressful experience and it turns into a physical fight or you have to run from something there's a genuine emergency you at least have something to do with that shifted blood pressure and you feel like you're mobilizing with your fear right but if you're sitting immobile with your fear and you have this raised blood pressure for hours on end it's really difficult to reconcile that that dissonance creates even more stress it's like well, why am i just sitting here with my heart rate so high and my blood pressure so high and we've got nothing to do with it which and some people deal with that by going to exercise you know they're like oh i'm going to go and do some high intensity interval training or something yeah. but even that you've got to be careful with because the heart rate's really high and then you do something high intensity it's not necessarily good for you you know right away right. so it's that there's this kind of there's this recognition of what's going on inside your body and there's methodologies that you can teach that you know technologies that have been around for a very, very long time in, in some spiritual practices in which you, you'll just get more awareness of what's going on inside your body and kind of become your own biofeedback monitor. But to augment that with a physical biofeedback monitor that gives you, again, data in real time about what's going on, like to me, that's kind of the, the confluence that's going to get us to a really, really interesting place where we have like a, a deep awareness of ourselves, which is mm. supported by by real data so that we can't lie to ourselves as well. You know, I think that's really interesting. Definitely. Yeah. I think, I think about this a lot because fundamentally, you know, I'm, I'm very much about everything you're talking about, self-awareness, hearing our body cues, sort of that somatic awareness and tapping Mm. into like what's going on inside. So it seemed really counterintuitive to be someone who's also like, oh, I think we should use tech to better understand our bodies. Like there could Mm. be an argument to be made of like, well, why don't you just listen to your body? You know, Mm. but I think we're in a very difficult place right now because it's actually hard to listen to a lot of our internal cues in our modern world. We are inundated with just sensationalist media. We live in a digital world that's highly addictive. Um, you know, we have foods that are literally engineered to take us to our bliss point and activate our reward circuitry in our brain. Um, it is a confusing time to be alive in terms of understanding your body signals, because essentially every industry is trying to get us to be completely in love with what they're doing on a neurologic level. And so mm-hmm. I think that's why we see a lot of breakdown in consistent positive choices because it's just very hard to listen to what's going on. You know, you feel yeah. sad and then you eat 
cookies and you watch a video, you play a video game and watch TV and then you feel not sad for a second, but are you really, you know, and so it's, and it's, it really comes down to this balance between these dopaminergic rewards and more long, which is like that instant hit of happiness, but not Mm. actually breeding long-term contentment versus Mm. our serotonin system, which is more associated with like the long-term happiness, but actually takes a bit more of an investment and lack of quick hits. Um, it's written about in this fabulous book by Robert Lustig, the hacking of the American mind. But Mm. I think some, a way to kind of bring it together is to use personal data to bring awareness and to, like you said, augment our personal inward experience of listening to our body. It's like extra support for hunches that you have about what's going on inside your body. And I kind of see it as like a boomerang effect. Like we're going to use tech to, build awareness, but with the intent of actually just being much more grounded and much Mm. more connected to mindfulness and whole foods and living close to the earth so we can support our microbiomes and getting away from things that cause us stress like tech and media and all this stuff. So, um, in this sort of cycle of using these tools to actually bring us back to like what really matters in the long run. So that's wonderful. Yes. Yeah, seems like the, the tables are rigged and we need some help getting back to the baseline. Right. So it's, right. it's, it's, and it's easy to be, you know, listen to the cues of your body when you're at a meditation retreat in Bali, right? A little bit right. harder when right. you're in like <laughs> New York city and people are screaming at you and you, the iPhone is beeping and you've got five meetings to get to a little bit more tricky. And you're eating a croissant, you know? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I'm reminded, I used to live in Japan and uh, I had a, um, uh, I was I was teaching there for a while, and I had a colleague. She was wonderful, medical Hayakawa. Her name was, and her mo- her mother-in-law lived with her, and she couldn't stand her mother-in-law and would tell me about this because she could tell me I was the foreigner, right? She could never admit it to her Japanese co- colleagues. Um, and I'd just been on this weekend in Kyoto, and I've been to these uh, you know temples uh, all over the place, loved them, saw these kind of um, Zen rock gardens, very peaceful, and ended up talking to an abbot, and he gave me this you know scroll thing, and he was just like, you should take this home, and uh, it says that you know. You should practice being happy today because if you don't practice being happy today, when do you plan on starting? Like when you've got your new car, your new job, like every day is practice of being happy. So you need to start today. And I'm like, whoa, yeah, it's deep, it's deep. And I went back and told Madako about this, and I was, and I thought I had this great, you know, enlightened moment, and I was fully Japanese, like getting there and stuff. And I told her, and she said, easy for him to say. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just thought that was wonderful. I was like, what? He's a monk, Disho. He sits around all day, breathing. Maybe he begs for some rice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So basically, yeah. her thing was like, he hasn't got kids. He hasn't got a mother-in-law. Yeah, you know, it's easy right. for him to be like practice being happy every day. And I was like, yeah, okay. So yeah, it <laughs> kind of reminds me of that. Yeah, wonderful. So maybe uh, yeah, the levels can help bring us back to bring us back to the baseline in in a way that we might not need the training wheels one day, but we definitely need something in the fight against big tech and attention and all the things that are driving us in the other direction right now. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, your story is bringing me back to Japan. Favorite place in the world. So yeah. Oh, it is. It is. Yeah. I got to spend some time in Kyoto and Tokyo and uh, Nico. And so it was, it was was lovely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, um, before before we leave, I'm mindful of your time here. We've been on for an hour. Um, I, how do people find out more about this? Is this something that's actually commercially available to everybody, or is it is only like prescription only? Or how how can they get involved and sign up for one? I mean, I'm kind of really excited now about the whole. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, continuous glucose monitors are prescription only devices because their indication is for the treatment of type one and type two diabetes. So. So we actually have our company, what, what we offer to people is a telemedicine consultation to be evaluated for a prescription only CGM. So 
you fill out an online form, a physician in your state reviews your, your materials. Um, and then if you're approved for one of these prescriptions, um, they are sent to your home. And so we send you a month's worth of sensors. They, they stay on your arm for two weeks. So two sensors will get you through a month. And then hmm. our competency is the app. It's the software that helps you interpret that data stream. So you know okay. what to do with it. So telemedicine consultation, actual hardware, and then um, app access, which together is our, our one month metabolic awareness journey. And so we are currently in um, a beta stage where we're, we're just working with beta customers, but we anticipate a full, a full launch uh, later this year. So more, more information. To more commercial folks across the way. So, so when you say for people um, who might be able to get it prescription wise, is that people who are already diagnosed diabetic or it's like pre-diabetic or just. Actually, so our company, we're firmly in the health and wellness space. So people we're actually only able to give our product to people who do not have type one or type two diabetes. So this is actually, oh, okay. being, it's an off label use of the actual device. And which is, this is why the physician consultation is so important because they're being evaluated. Yeah. Is it safe for this person Check. for nutrition, personalized nutrition indication, um, and sort yeah. of health optimization, um, yeah. to, to have this. And so, um, so this is the first time it's really being used for a, a different market, um, because we see yeah. huge potential in how this data can actually you know, keep us healthy and keep us, um, you know, keep us eating and living in a way that hopefully keeps us out of those long-term issues that are resulting, that result from a lifetime of, you know, of dietary and lifestyle issues. So, yeah. So how do the, um, how do the early adopters jump in? Is there like a wait list? Is it like a, ordering a Tesla? You kind of have to get on the big yeah. list and then wait for yeah. it to come around. <laughs> there's a wait list. So you can go to levelshealth.com and sign up for the wait list. And there's mm. actually I would really big plug for levelshealth.com slash blog, which is our blog and just amazing guest experts, MDs, PhDs, writing about metabolic health, fitness, athletics, nutrition. It's, it's really high quality information. So definitely check that out. And then we're at levels um, on Instagram and Twitter, just at levels. And that's fun to follow because we're constantly reposting people's, our beta customers' experiences using CGM for athletics mm. and, and whatnot. We have a number of pro athletes using the program. So you can kind of see how people use it um, and start getting the wheels turning for, for when it becomes more widely accessible. Sounds wonderful. Brilliant. But I, for one, am excited. I'm sure there's a lot of people <laughs> listening to this who want to who want to jump into the space as well. So, and, uh, and I'll put the um the links to the uh, to the blog there and all that kind of stuff on the show notes so people can click through as well. Um, any closing thoughts? If you had uh, any advice for people in general, whether or not they're going to get a, a levels levels monitor. I would just say, you know, I am very optimistic about you know health and the future of healthcare. I think one of the things I love most about the body is that it is not a one-way direction with health. It's always a two-way street. We can always improve and especially with metabolism. And, um, so I think, you know, it's just a great time to be alive because we, we kind of used to think that like we get old and we get sick and then we die, but that's really, you know, not the way it has to be. We can always move in the right direction on the spectrum. So I think I love what you're promoting on your, in your work and, and, and certainly support, um, that. So yeah. Um, Definitely, definitely just want to leave with a message of optimism. <laughs> Marvelous. Great. And, and maybe we can uh, do this again some point down the line when things are off and running in the commercial space and things like that. Yes, Introduce great. it to more people. Marvelous. Thank you so much, Dr. Casey Means. And I uh, hope we can stay in touch. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to find out more about classes, workshops, and seminars at NC Sistema, please visit us online at www.ncsistema.com.